Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. In this episode for Black History Month, historian and biographer Erica Armstrong Dunbar joins us to discuss the life of Harriet Tubman, whom she profiles in She Came to Slay. Harriet Tubman escaped slave and abolitionist, became one of the most successful conductors on the Underground Railroad. We're talking about her as the effort accelerates to put her portrait on the $20 bill. Our conversation will begin in just a moment. The Treasury Department is taking steps to resume efforts to put Harriet Tubman on the front of the new $20 notes. Uh, it's important uh, that our notes, our, our, our money, uh, people don't know what a note is, uh, reflect the history and diversity of our country. And Harriet Tubman's image, gracing the new $20 note, would certainly reflect that. So we're exploring ways to speed up that effort. Dr. Erica Armstrong Dunbar, it seems that Harriet Tubman's likeness will soon be on the U.S. $20 bill. She's a household name for most Americans for her work, prolific work on the Underground Railroad. What are the top line other things that Harriet Tubman should be noted for? Yeah, you know, I think there she lived such a long life and she did so many things during that long life. I think oftentimes we only know maybe 10 to 15 years of her life. And that, of course, is... Um, centers on the Underground Railroad and her amazing courage, bravery, um, resistance that we see in those spaces. But, you know, I I push people to think about Harriet Tubman Davis as um, a complete person, as someone who was a child, as someone who was eventually married um, twice, uh, someone who uh, was a mother uh, by choice, someone who went on to fight um, for suffrage, for women's suffrage, someone who was committed to making certain that the elderly, in particular those who were had been enslaved, um, had some kind of safety network um, towards the end of their life. Uh, she was truly, she was an activist uh, in, in the most kind of thorough sense of the word. I'm not certain that she would have called herself that, I think she thought of herself more as a sort of maybe a servant leader. Uh, she was a deeply religious woman um, who did everything from lead, lead people out of enslavement in, in her home uh, state of Maryland to leading a military um, expedition during the Civil War. And so these are some of the things that um, people don't really know much about, if anything at all, with respect to, to Harriet Tubman. How would you describe her belief in the United States itself as an entity? Hmm. You know, I think it's a great question because um, oftentimes when we think about what does the what does the United States mean to people, what is the the way we build its narrative, we often don't do it through the lens of enslaved people. And I think actually Harriet Tubman is the perfect person to think about what um, America meant to her, uh, to her family, uh, to her peers. And that was, you know, that was shifting landscape. That was um, in some some ways quicksand, uh, born enslaved, um, cheated out of freedom. She wrestled um, her own kind of liberation away from the tentacles of, of enslavement. And um, 
she always sort of knew she, she was, as I said, a deeply religious woman, but she always knew that she would have to fight enslaved or free as a, a black woman living through the 19th into the 20th century. You know, her life was far from easy. At no point could she rest. At no point could she um, lay down the concerns of what enslaved and free black people had to confront throughout the century. Uh, and so I think she saw, if you had asked her, she probably would, um, probably would find a way to say that America was a work in progress and that it was something that she would leave to, to her maker uh, to determine. Like most enslaved people, she never learned to read and write, even throughout her, her later years. Uh, so what kind of archival material were you able to tap to learn about her story? What exists? Yeah, no, there's, there actually is, there's a significant amount of archival evidence that really helped us, all scholars who work on Harriet Tubman, piece her life um, together. And, you know, one thing I will say is that the archives are typically not kind to scholars like myself who want to weave together a story that centers the lives of enslaved people, as you said. Tubman never learned to, to read or write, as was the case for millions of enslaved people. And so that leaves us with having to um, do detective work that often relies on the voice of others. It's ledgers, it's wills, it's um, later on census records that oftentimes women in particular are difficult to trace. Fortunately, we do have some kind of a narrative that Tubman left behind, not by, of course, by her own pen, um, but something that gives us, although problematic in some spaces, gives us a window into her experience. And fortunately, um, others wrote about Tubman. So, you know, there's always been, I'd say, you know, probably since the 1960s, uh, some piece of Tubman that has appeared in history textbooks across the nation. Usually it's a small image of Tubman, uh, perhaps somewhere nearby is another small image of, of Frederick Douglass. In many ways, uh, they were contemporaries, but lived very different lives. Both were fugitives, both eventually became free, uh, Tubman much later. Um, but in many ways, the archival uh, work to put together the lives of enslaved people is still, it's, um, it's difficult labor, but fortunately we have enough information to paint a life for, for Tubman. How famous or at sometimes infamous was Harriet Tubman during the arc of her own life? Yeah, you know, in many ways, Tubman actually doesn't become sort of famous or iconic the way we understand her right now um, until way after she's she left the planet, way after her death. Um, but she was, of course, uh, notorious during the 1850s in particular uh, because she was um, a major conductor on, on the Underground Railroad. And she was... Um, there were bounties placed on her head where there, you know, different arguments about how much they were, but we know that she was a wanted woman for um, a good, you know, 15 or so years of her life. And for that reason, she moved about um, the North and the South and Canada um, in ways that were always strategic 
always careful because her freedom, although it wasn't uh, legal freedom, she lived as a free person once she escaped, always had to be protected. And um, people wanted to catch her. People wanted to catch her and they wanted to uh, make certain that the property, the human property that she had helped escape either to the north or to Canada would be returned. Your biography of Harriet Tubman is titled She Came to Slay. What is that title from? Yeah, you know, I was, um, this This book is somewhat different than some of the other biographies of, of Tubman. And there's been, you know, a couple of great biographies by Kate Clifford Larson, um, Catherine Clinton in particular. I, I wanted to kind of refashion Harriet Tubman in some ways. I was writing um, this around the time we knew that um, the biopic of Harriet Tubman would finally make it to um, the silver screen. And I wanted to write something that would fill in the blanks for the spaces that the film couldn't couldn't cover, but more specifically to engage a, a younger audience. Um, uh, and now millennials aren't so young anymore, but millennials, and I guess we'd call them Generation Z now, um, people who think they know about Harriet Tubman. But I wanted to be able to connect her in this moment of social justice act activism that we see in the streets um, throughout the nation in particular, I wanted to be able to connect her to, to a movement, a social justice movement of the 19th century. And the phrase um, she came to slay is, is really is a popular um, phrase connected, of course, to Beyonce and to Beyonce's, um, maybe I was watching Homecoming, her, her, um, her video and album, um, where this phrase, she came to slay, was popularized and really specifically means that a woman is coming to um, demonstrate her power, to release her power, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's uh, at the Cumbie River, whether it's in the eastern shore of Maryland, whether it's in the boardroom, that this phrase, she came to slay, is not necessarily about, you know, the actual term slay or murder, but it's more a play on that as if, you know, she had come to take care of her business, any woman, and that there's great power and courage um, in that act. What can you uh, tell our, our viewers about the early circumstances of her birth? She wasn't born with the name Harriet Tubman, so uh, tell that story. Yeah, um, we all know her, of course, as, as Harriet Tubman. Harriet Tubman Davis actually was um, her surname at her death. But she was not born um, Harriet Tubman. She was actually named by her parents, uh, Araminta Ross, and her nickname was Minty. Um, you know, I begin my book not actually with her birth, but I take us sort of further back and I connect Harriet Tubman or Araminta um, to Africa. And I thought that's it's really important. We often sort of just think about Tubman as someone who just existed in, in Maryland. And um, I wanted to make certain that we saw the connections between Africa and, and Araminta, and her grandmother, who was named Modesty, uh, was brought to 
the eastern shore of Maryland sometime in the 1780s, most likely from the west coast of Africa. And um, she gave birth to uh, Araminta's mother, uh, Harriet Green. And so I wanted readers to understand that really she, Harriet Tubman was only, what, two generations removed from Africa. And that those stories and the, the culture was still some way a part of her life. She was born sometime, we think, in 1822. Um, the records suggest as much. She was um, the fifth child out of nine to her parents, um, Harriet and, and Ben Ross, Benjamin Ross. Um, you know, they carved, carved out a life for themselves as a family, um, as an enslaved family. And that was always extremely difficult um, in the 19th century. And they struggled with the same issues that most enslaved families lived with. She, Tubman would lose three of her siblings to the domestic slave trade. They were sold off and, and never seen again. Um, and, you know, she was also a part of a small family, or rather a large family in the small state of, of Maryland. And she lived on the Eastern Shore, which was somewhat different than places like Baltimore or other uh, sort of Southern locales. There was a significant um, presence of free Black people in on the Eastern Shore. And, um, but her family was fractured. They managed to find a way to stay connected and her parents remained uh, in love with one another and together for decades. Um, but really they were forced to live apart for much of their lives. Um, Harriet at the, or rather Araminta at the age of five or six was hired out away from her mother. So, you know, I often I ask readers to think about this, that a five year old is someone who, who probably did not yet have her adult teeth. Right. She's still a baby um, is hired out away from her family to begin basically this transition to slave labor. And we know that this happened um, early for children, anywhere from five to nine or 10 years of age, uh, sort of formal duties or tasks were assigned. And for, um, for Araminta, she found herself caught up in that web. She was to start with domestic work. She was to take care of an infant, to stay up with that infant all night long. And, um, you know, this was, of course, very difficult for a five-year-old who couldn't even sort of physically hold the child because she herself was so small. She'd have to sit on the ground uh, with the baby. And, and every time the baby woke and um, her new owners were, uh, awakened, she would uh, be physically whipped, beaten. And this is the, the, the life of enslavement as a um, uh, still a child, but forced to do adult duties. This is what she lived. Um, she didn't actually end up being one of the most um, uh, uh, great domestic um, enslaved people that wasn't sort of uh, Araminta's thing or Harriet's thing and she eventually becomes um, spends much of her time during her teens and, and early 20s doing uh, agricultural work and that of course was what the majority of enslaved people did um, throughout most of the South and she found herself in the fields doing the most arduous difficult labor throwing flax and lifting heavy bags onto wagons and um really uh, tilling the earth 
And in many ways, this, I, I believe this difficult work connected Araminta to the land. It allowed her to know, uh, to learn quite a bit about herbs and um, plants that could heal, that could um, um, offer uh, relief from pain uh, when the enslaved had no access to medical care. And so this became really, I think, the, the years, her teenage years, we'd call them now into her early 20s, uh, really became the, the years that she was sort of preparing to, to become a warrior. She didn't know it, but she was preparing herself, her body, her physical stamina, which was quite strong and she would need it to remain so, as well as her familiarity with the land and um, nature around her, allowed her, prepared her for her journey. For a great deal of her life, uh, you tell readers that she suffered from uh, or maybe took advantage of things that she called visions. Uh, and this actually came from her early enslaved years. What's that story? Yeah, you know, we often don't think about Harriet Tubman as someone who lived with a disability, but she did. Um, and this disability came because of the violence of slavery. And often when we think about the trauma, the bodily trauma inflicted upon the enslaved, um, Harriet Tubman falls into that category of someone who uh, eventually had to live with um, the markers of physical violence. Sometime in her early teenage years, sometime between 12 and 14 years of age, she was on her way to um, what she thought was a sort of simple chore, heading down to the general um, sort of store. And on her way, um, she her path sort of intersected with um, people that would actually change her life forever. Uh, there was a man who was um, basically running away. We don't know if he was trying to sort of run away permanently, if he was, uh, if it was a sort of temporary um, absconding, but we do know that he was running from an overseer. And the overseer was in fast sort of pursuit of this man. They all kind of, their paths converge at this store. And the overseer sees um, Araminta and he says, he basically mandates that she help capture this man. And this is probably a, a suggestion about who Araminta would become, but she refuses to do so. She kind of steps to the side. And in that moment of refusing to follow this man's mandate, the, um, the enslaved man who was running, he, he escapes. And the, this overseer, who was so just furious, he picked up um, a, a metal weight off of a counter and supposedly was hurling it in the direction of the runaway. That's what we think. But it actually hit Araminta. And um, it hit her in her head, and it fractured her skull. And this, of course, is before the era in which modern medicine um, offered much to anyone, but especially to the enslaved. This is in the 1830s. And so she's, she's knocked out. Just, she's basically in a coma. She's, she's dragged to um, her sleeping quarters. She doesn't have a bed. Uh, they put her on um, uh, the bench of a spinning wheel. 
and she basically bleeds for hours. Um, she eventually comes to and she's forced to go back to work in the fields. And she, she recounts later on in her life, the blood sort of pouring down her face, blurring her vision. But it was from that moment on that um, Harriet Tubman lived with what she called visions. Um, probably today, we would call them maybe seizures um, from the, the severe head trauma. And she would wrestle with these visions, these, and, and they weren't sort of daydreamy visions. It was, they were moments that um, incapacitated her. They often uh, were accompanied by terrible headaches, debilitating headaches. Um, and then these kind of um, seizure-like states where she could not be awakened. And um, her family and friends learned that they simply had to let her sort of come to. And so while these were, um, they, they marked her as a somewhat disabled person, as a quote, sickly enslaved person, um, and therefore her value uh, was questioned because of that. She also saw this as a moment that connected her deeply, spiritually, to her God. Um, during these um, seizures or moments of um, unconsciousness, she would have visions. She would later report. And these were visions that would actually inform her, sort of tell her in what direction she should move, where if there was danger. Um, and she, she had these visions for the majority of her life. And so she actually, at this moment where we see something that was very debilitating, painful, she um, uh, would look for sort of relief from her headaches for the entirety of her life. Um, but she also saw this as a way, a sort of avenue to connect closer and deeper to her God who would um, give her direction throughout a, a, her sort of many difficult years as an enslaved person. So moving on to her prolific years with the Underground Railroad, it was the year 1849 when she decided to make an escape to Philadelphia. Uh, why Philadelphia? Uh, what was her life like there? And what inspired her to begin going back to the Eastern Shore to help rescue people? Yeah, you know, her um, Harriet Tubman makes the decision to run to become a fugitive. And oftentimes we see some kind of um, incident or event that prompts this decision to risk everything. Um, when we think about enslaved people who were fugitives, sometimes we, we sort of approach that casually. But the decision to sort of leave behind everything you know, everyone you know, to do so, do so as a woman, as um, an illiterate person, um, as a black woman in the 19th century, that took such courage, such grit, such determination that you, you know we should never sort of approach fugitivity or this act of running as something that was um, casual or normal. She made that decision because she was deeply suspicious that she was going to be sold. Uh, and this, of course, um, in 1849, was every enslaved person's nightmare. 
to be separated from her family that, as I said, managed to create a life um, for themselves, a tightly knit family. There was a threat in part because of her disability and her ailments that she would be sold further south. Um, and that was, of course, the route of the domestic slave trade in the 1830s and 40s. States like Virginia and Maryland would often fuel the slave trade by um, selling enslaved men, women, and children into the deeper south, into states like Mississippi and Alabama. And so when she caught wind of this supposed sale that she was going to be sold, she made the decision to leave. And we, we often don't uh, know about sort of, or sort of talk about the details behind her decision to leave. She was married at the time. So it wasn't just her parents and siblings that she would be leaving behind, but she had married a man named John Tubman uh, in 1844, a free man. And so her decision to run often also meant leaving behind her future, her future husband. She escaped um, at first in the fall of, of 1849, and she left with two of her brothers who were also slotted supposedly to be sold. And an interesting thing happened on uh, this journey. They leave the Eastern shore of Maryland or attempt to, and at some point her brothers make the decision that they shouldn't go forward with the plan. They were frightened, they were, and think about this, there are three of them that uh, none of them could read, none of them sort of knew their way out of the Eastern shore of Maryland towards um, the uh, free North, right? And so they make the decision that they are going to turn back and that they'd rather face the punishment that was sure to follow than the, um, the sort of unknown environs uh, of basically the underground. And Harriet Tubman doesn't want to go back. She wants to move forward. She's, she, she's intent on moving forward. And her brothers literally almost drag her back. Uh, and it's perhaps at that moment that Tubman makes the decision that no man is ever going to make that any kind of real decision for her regarding um, her journey in life. She returns home and then shortly thereafter leaves again on her own. And at some point, sort of late in 1849, she arrives at the border of Pennsylvania. And for those people who've seen the biopic, Harriet, there's this sort of beautiful scene in the film where she literally sort of hops over uh, what would have been the state line to Pennsylvania, a marker of freedom. And for, for those who, who, of course, know that Pennsylvania, by of course, by the 1840s, was a state that had um, disowned slavery. And there was a free Black population that was thriving there. Um, and while technically Harriet Tubman was not a free person, she was someone who was a fugitive, she could live as a free person in Philadelphia or New York or Boston, places that had rid themselves of slavery. And so this moment in 1849, she actually uh, makes that jump um, to freedom. And what I think is so powerful about her and reminds us that she really was a servant leader from, from day one. The minute that she sort of finds her freedom, she immediately thinks about those she's left behind. And she later on says that 
um, basically, I paraphrase here, that her freedom means very little without her family, that she knew no one in, in Philadelphia, that her family uh, was left behind and that would never sit well with her. And it was like almost instantly that she made the decision that one way or another, she was gonna go back and rescue her family. And she did so. There, uh, among scholars, there seems to be different numbers used about the number of trips that she made back into slave territory and, uh, and how many people she actually was able to rescue through the Underground Railroad. Where do you end up on those, those two questions? Yeah, you know, I sort of, I fall in um, line with some of the other uh, great biographers of, of Tubman. You know, we, we know that she made at least 13 trips um, to and from the Eastern shore of Maryland. And that's, that's one thing that people sort of either don't know or confuse, you know, Tuppen wasn't running all over the South uh, emancipating people, no. She made specific targeted trips to the state of Maryland to rescue her family and her friends. So we know that she touched the lives of um, and basically emancipated um, at least 60 to 70 people on at least 13 trips. Now, of course, here's one thing that as scholars we have to wrestle with, but also um, be comfortable in knowing that we won't know uh, the details of everything, in part because she was a fugitive. And this top secret, um, these expeditions down to the South, down to the Eastern Shore of Maryland, um, had to be done so in the most discreet um, in the most discreet fashion. So she didn't, and also because she was illiterate, she did not keep um, uh, tight records about everyone she emancipated, um, everyone she left. So, you know, there may be um, 10 years from now, now there might be a document that reveals itself that says, well, actually, you know, Tubman made 18 trips. And, you know, people actually say to me, well, how's that going to make you feel? You, you, you know, you're thinking one number or another. And I say this, this sort of reminds us that history um, is not static, it's living, and that it changes over time with more evidence that we have. But for fugitives in particular, like Tubman, we're dependent upon the information that we can find. And so far, it, it's very clear that a small group of friends and family 60 to 70 is actually perhaps not that small. She manages to rescue on her own. And, and that is no sort of small feat that she does so. She doesn't lose one person to either um, slave catchers or to death, that she manages to ferry all of them out of Maryland eventually to, to Philadelphia. And then when things became more difficult, legally, especially with the passage of the Fugitive Slave Law in 1850. She sort of understood that there really was no safe space for any fugitive in the United States of America. Of course, getting further away from the Mason-Dixon line was better, but that it, and it was basically um, a war zone for any of the enslaved in any state in the nation. And so she, she began to shuttle her friends and family, and those she led on the underground, uh, to Canada. 
because that really was the one of the few safe havens that she could reach. The, these fugitives were now beyond the grasp of um, United States law. And although life was very difficult, specifically in St. Catharines, um, that's where um, uh, Harriet Tubman would spend, and her family, would spend years um, going back and forth to Canada. This was difficult, but to be honest, it was really one of the only spaces where she could sort of guarantee freedom. And so the numbers change for Tubman, at least in terms of who she set free. But then there's a whole other phase to, to Tubman's life when she works um, specifically in the Civil War, where she emancipates hundreds more. Before we get to that part of the story, which I think will be new for a lot of people listening to this, I uh, wanted to just uh, highlight one person, because you, you have a chart in the book of the many people who uh, her life intersected with during this period. And you mentioned Frederick Douglass as one. Another, of course, is John Brown, famous Harper's Ferry raid. The one person I wanted you to tell the story of briefly is, is Senator William Seward, eventually made his way to Lincoln's cabinet. But what was what did he do for Harriet Tubman and why? Yeah, you know, he was a, a really interesting, um, there, it's an interesting intersection between the two of them. He was the senator, he was governor of, of New York at one point, um, but he was really well known um, within abolitionist circles. And I'm glad you, you asked this question about him because Tubman becomes um, very sort of dependent upon abolitionists in, in the North. And she becomes um, a part of that movement in the 18. Um, 40s, 50s uh, in particular, in between her time where she's going down and rescuing people from the Eastern Shore of Maryland, she's also kind of on the the speaker circuit in a way that uh, Frederick Douglass was. Now, of course, hers was her sort of speaking circuit was was nowhere near as sort of grandiose as as Frederick Douglass, who became, you know, one of the most well known orators of the 19th century. But because she was still a fugitive, she her name was um, kept um, uh, private, and she was a part of this kind of traveling circuit of abolitionists in New England, in particular, um, that went around sort of talking about um, the horrors of slavery, but also drumming up support to try and defeat it. And this governor, this senator, was indeed part of this circle. And in 1859. He offers um, Harriet Tubman really sort of a gift that she probably never imagined would come her way. He had um, property and an old home in Auburn, New York, that he wanted to gift her. And he, he didn't gift it sort of outright with, you know, not, not costing her anything. Um, there was a small sort of mortgage that would be attached to the home. But really, this was this was sort of amazing when we think about him gifting her this place that would become her home. Um, here she is um, as uh, still a, a fugitive woman owning property in Auburn, New York. And this space would eventually allow her to move her, her family members, her brothers, her sisters, her, her aged parents. Um, and they would come and stay with her in Auburn, New York. And this became her kind of home base um, for, for the rest of her life. It was a gift that um, 
meant so much to her, but then later on um, to generations of people that were connected to, to Tubman. So this is a sort of reminder of the, the strategy and the courage and the bravery that Tubman embodied but also the collaboration and the friendships and um, the partnerships that she engaged in um, with with other abolitionists. Before we get on to her Civil War service, which is quite a story, uh, when we last left her, she was Araminta Ross. You said that she married uh, Tubman, John Tubman, so that's where the Tubman of her name came from. When did she take the name Harriet and why? You know, um, historians are not quite certain to be very honest, about when exactly she takes the name Harriet. We know that she took the name Harriet um, to honor her mother, who was named Harriet. Uh, and of course, Marion in 1844, she probably took the name Tubman um, in her mind, but we have to remember that um, marriages between anyone enslaved, even though John Tubman was a free black man, was not sanctioned by law. So her marriage, although it was very real to her, it was legally just not binding um, in Maryland or in the United States. So, um, to, but it would have been um, practical, a marker of choice to take on um, his surname, Tubman. And so most historians believe it happened sometime um, following her marriage in 1844 and before her departure, her arrival in Philadelphia in 1849, that she takes the name Harriet with this, this surname Tubman, and that becomes the iconic marker, iconic name that we, we know her by. So on to her Civil War service. She had three years of combat service between 1862 and 1865. Uh, so I want you to give more details about that because it's really quite an amazing story. Before you do, uh, we, we have all read about the contributions of African-American troops during the Civil War. How common would it have been for a formerly enslaved uh, African-American woman to contribute to the war effort? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that... Um we don't know much, or at least many people don't know much about Tubman's service in the Civil War. And that's not unlike many of the other enslaved women who participated in the war. It may not have been on the battlefields, but um, tens of thousands of enslaved women fled to the Union lines, as did their husbands and brothers and fathers. And while they weren't issued a military outfit, and or uh, a gun or ammunition. They worked in uh, the camps, what were called contraband camps, um, to help feed um, underfed uh, black soldiers, to work as nurses. Um, for some of them who were literate, I'm thinking about Susie King Taylor, who's a well-known um, teacher in the Civil War, to, um, to help those who were living in the camps and those who were um, fighting for the Union, um, the Union Army, for Harriet Tubman, her situation was quite unique, to be very honest, not just as an enslaved um, woman, but just as a woman, period. She, her story and her decision to head down to South Carolina in 1862 is actually another moment of just how courageous, almost unbelievably courageous, 
that Tubman really was. It's, in 1862, we have to remember, she's still a fugitive. This, Maryland does not uh, move, move away from slavery or end slavery until 1864. So she'd been set free by no one. So she's still a fugitive when um, the governor of Massachusetts, literally, he approaches her. And, and by then, um, Tubman was, as I said, sort of well-known in abolitionist circles. Her stories about how she emancipated um, so many people really craft or fashioned her as someone who knew how to gather intelligence who knew how to um, maneuver behind the, the um, or on the battlefields. And so the governor of Massachusetts literally approaches her and, and basically asks her um, to give her time and energy to the, to the union cause and to go down to South Carolina as a spy. And it was really, it would be her responsibility to infiltrate to move beyond Confederate lines, to find out as much information as she could, and to share that with the other sort of military leaders um, for the Union Army. So this was what the expectation was. And this was all premised upon her work that everyone knew as um, a, basically as a scout and as a conductor on the Underground Railroad. So she agrees to go. And and this moment, this, this is moving beyond the eastern shore of Maryland. She goes deep into the south. She'd never been uh, to the sea islands of South Carolina. And she arrives there in 1862 with the expectation of becoming a, a spy and a scout. But of course it doesn't happen for her, not, not immediately. Um, they see her as a, a black woman and as incapable of doing the work that she was actually asked to do. So we actually see her shuttled into other kinds of work. She becomes uh, a nurse for, um, uh, in particular, for the colored troops. And remember, it's her, her, um, her memory or her familiarity with herbs and um, different grasses and roots that allowed her to concoct teas for um, men who were quite sick when medicine was always in short supply. And she's literally holding the hands of dying men, shooing flies away from their blood-covered bodies. She's, she's doing the work of nursing, which many other um, in, formerly enslaved women did as well. She also begins to, she realizes that she has to help those who've made it to union lines um, to find a way to survive. Um, and she teaches uh, formerly enslaved women sort of how to become entrepreneurs. She herself is, um, it takes her domestic skills as a baker in particular, and she's baking pies and cakes and she's making root beer at night. And she's selling these products during the day to um, enlisted men who are always hungry. Um, and she teaches other women to do the same thing or to, to make money by washing the uniforms of, um, of men or, or or finding ways to um, darn socks and repair ripped clothing to do this for small sums of money. And she's doing all of this and she gains a reputation, not within military circles, but with the enslaved who were from South Carolina. And especially because of her compassion as a nurse. And she finds a way to connect 
to enslaved men and women who are still living behind Confederate lines. She infiltrates and she gains their, their trust. And she learns some of the most important um, sort of strategic information that white military commanders simply didn't know. And she brings that information back to military leaders. And it's then and only then that they allow her to become a part really of um, what would be one of the most well-known um, military expeditions in South Carolina. That was the Cumbie River Raid. Um, and, and she's positioned there because she had to prove herself first. And she did by gathering information um, and becomes a, a, an important part of that, of that um, raid. When she died, she was buried with military honors. I presume it was in recognition of this period of her life and her contributions there. Yeah, you know, there was um, there was always tension about later on in Tubman's life about how to recognize her service. We know that she was the first woman to lead a military expedition in the Civil War, and that was the Cumbie River Raid. But what later on in life, that sort of achievement was not really recognized. Um, and later on, when she applied for pensions and um, recognition for her service, that was always, um, it was always sort of neglected. So she received a pension later on for um, a widow's pension. She received a pension for being a nurse. But it wasn't until um, actually much, much later that she never received a pension for being a, a scout or a spy, never. But it's really been most recently, like within the past, um, the beginning of, of 2021, where she was um, inducted into the um, Army, the U.S. Army um, Military Intelligence Hall of Fame. And so this is this is 2021 where um, she's she's. Uh, sort of inducted into this Hall of Fame, recognizing her work as a spy and a scout. So even, you know, this is a hundred years after her birth, where we finally see this recognition um, of her work as a military leader. Um, and of course, she didn't necessarily, she didn't live to see that recognition. Um, but Tubman was someone who didn't need that. Tubman was someone who actually preferred to work behind the lines and not sort of up front. When we compare her to other fugitive um, leaders or writers at the time, and I've mentioned Frederick Douglass, he was a very public person, uh, in part because he was a brilliant orator and, and writer. Um, Tubman never took uh, sort of front stage. That wasn't her... Um, it's not what she preferred. She preferred to do the work on the ground and often wouldn't or never received acknowledgement for it. We have about 12 minutes left in our hour with you. And uh, her, uh, as we said before we started taping, her story is big and complex and can really only get to some of the highlights. One of the things I do want you to talk about is her life after the war when she became involved with the suffragist movement. And uh, to make the point in this year when we've just celebrated the 100th anniversary, that the suffrage movement really did not ultimately welcome black women into their efforts. Yeah, you know, Tubman um, was someone who, because of her age, because of her relationships with, um, strong relationships with the abolitionist community, 
She had deep ties to some of the sort of founding mothers, if you will, of the suffragist movement. And um, this got thorny at times uh, after the Civil War, moving into the sort of 1870s, 1880s, into the 1890s. Um, it was very clear that uh, the suffrage movement was splintered by race, that there was um, in the attempts to hold on to white Southern women's um, engagement in suffrage, the uh, black women were pretty much left out of um, sort of mainstream suffrage clubs and organizations. And, you know, for black women, they just, okay, they built their own then in the 1890s. This was the era of, of black club women's um, movement. But it left people like Tubman in a bit of a pickle. She was someone who couldn't turn her back on a generation of women who, although they had been abolitionists, were not um, completely uh, removed from bigoted thinking from ideas about black inferiority. And that was something that uh, Dubman had to wrestle with. These were women who at times had literally given her money so that she wouldn't starve uh, or who had helped her um, ferry people to freedom. And she managed to sort of walk this line between holding on to these kind of relationships with um, suffragists was always very clear that women, she believed women should have the right to vote. There was no um, doubt about that. When the 15th Amendment was passed, giving black men the right to vote, this infuriated many white abolitionist women who said, why are black men allowed to vote and we're not? And this was something that uh, both white and black women um, were infuriated about for, for decades. Tubman found a way to kind of maneuver within both of these spaces. She was still respected with her um, white abolitionist um, peers, but she was revered by black club women. And thinking in the early 1890s, when the National Association of Colored Women has their first, um, their first convention, their first meeting, Tubman's there. And she, they put her on stage and Ida B. Wells is there and, and others who are uh, clearly in the fight for, for women to, to gain the vote. And they hold her up as iconic, as a sort of mother of the movement. Whether she wanted that recognition or not, is um, we don't quite know. But we know that she was appreciated um, by her peers and also by the generation of black women who would organize in the streets, in the schools during the era of, of Jim Crow in order to push for women, white and black, to have the right to vote. We have seven minutes left and you referenced earlier that she also in her later years built a place of refuge for older uh, uh, black folks uh, who could come and spend out their years, and she gave support and ultimately lived there herself. I'm going to invite people to read your book to learn more about that story because of our time. And I do want to get um, a couple of questions in about you so people understand a little bit more about your work. But just very quickly, what year did she die and where is she buried? Sure. She's, she's buried in New York. She died in 1913, in March of 1913. And so we think about that. That's a, a, an enormous span. She she was born uh, in the early 1820s and 
lived through the Civil War, lived through um, the beginnings of Jim Crow, lived through um, really the the chain, the turn of the 20th century. Um, and when and she managed to do all this, I do want to just say quickly that one of the things about Harriet Tubman that we always must sort of think about is that she managed, even with all of her activism, to carve out a life for herself. She married a second time. So as I said before, her, her surname was Davis. If you look at her um, her tombstone that exists today, it says Harriet Tubman Davis. Um, she adopted a child um, and raised that child. She was a source of strength and um, courage for anyone who came in her path. And her life was never easy. Harriet Tubman was never a rich woman. She always struggled to survive, which is um, sort of unimaginable for us now when we think about how iconic she was. But she always struggled to put food on the table. Um, But her deep belief in God and her activism um, managed to sort of create a way when there was no way. Um, And, um, you know, her her final resting place is, is in New York. So in the few minutes that we have left, you teach at Rutgers University. Uh, you are based in Philadelphia area, and you certainly research and write. You, you write in your, in your biography online that you've really devoted yourself to telling the stories of uh, African-American women. Uh, I'm wondering um, what inspired you in this direction. What, was the, what led you to a career as a historian? You know, I think um, I always loved good stories. Um, and I, I don't think when I was young that I knew that, you know, the difference between sort of uh, fiction and nonfiction, but I loved a good story. And history was something that growing up in Philadelphia that you couldn't escape. You know, history was in our backyard. Um, and I think as a young person, as I moved into sort of college or late teenage college years, I realized that I wasn't learning about black women that I was learning about American history, but that there were deep voids, deep holes. Um, and by the time that I got to college and was fortunate enough to, to engage with some of the top historians at the University of Pennsylvania, I was sort of sold. Um, and, you know, I, I, what I will say is um, I was really fortunate to have that kind of intervention. People who said, Erica, you're good at history and you should think about, um, think about this as a profession. And now... I feel quite fortunate that I get to dedicate myself to telling the stories of the lives of enslaved and free black women. And it's not only um, an honor to do it, but it's, it's also an obligation. Do you have another one in the pipeline? I'm working on it. You sound like my, uh, my editor. <laughs> not, um, not intended, yes, but... I'm, I am working on a book. All of my work focuses on um, centers the lives of enslaved women. And so the project I'm working on right now um, is a civil war project that asks us to think about the civil war through the lens of of enslaved women. You were recently elected to head the Association of Black Women Historians. Uh, What are your goals for that organization? Yeah, you know, once again, it's an honor to serve as the national director of ABWH. And we're the only organization dedicated to supporting and nurturing scholars, both Black women scholars and those who focus on the lives of Black women's history. And the one thing that I'm proud to always say is when we when we look at those who are winning the sort of top awards across the field of U.S. history, of African history, it's not just U.S. history, you know, that it's Black women's work 
that and women about uh, history about black women that's that's winning these awards so we're in many ways continuing to to lead the field and we're um really fortunate to have stood on the shoulders of giants who made certain that women's history and that black women's history in particular became a respected and integral um, field within U.S. history. Your book, as we close out here, I want to give people an opportunity if they want to read more, because again, we only skimmed the surface, is called She Came to Slay. So as we circle back at the end here to Harriet Tubman, through the lens of anybody living in 2021, what are the life lessons of Harriet Tubman's life that we can apply to our own lives today? Yeah, you know, there's one word that comes immediately to mind, and that's courage. I think that um, recent days, months, years have been difficult for multiple reasons. Um, and I think that what, one thing we learned from Tubman's story is that even in the darkest of hours, the darkest of hours, she was able to summon the courage to put one foot in, in front of the next foot and, and to, to recognize that progress could happen. It might happen slowly, uh, but that she never gave up and courage would drive progress. And so I think that's something that um, in this year in particular that all of us um, can relate to. Dr. Erica Armstrong Dunbar talking to us from Philadelphia. Thank you so much for spending an hour with C-SPAN and teaching us more about the life of Harriet Tubman. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments or ideas. Your feedback is welcome.